Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Bakugul Frostcult the 22nd. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review of Darkness and Light by Paul B. Thompson and Tanya C. or R. Cook. I've seen it both ways, and I'm not sure which one's right. I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. You can even pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using my affiliate links. All right, so this is my perspective only. If yours differs, that's okay. Let me know in the comments below what you thought of Darkness and Light or this review or Dragonlance in general. We welcome all types here. <laughs> all right. The way these work is that I have given a pre-written review as I was reading this. I usually break up the books in like three different segments and then just sort of riff on my thoughts after I've read it and then, you know, sort of, edited it all at the very end. Sometimes doing a very poor job at editing, but that's, this is free. What do you care? This <laughs> is what I do. All right. So uh, for those of you joining live, thank you so much for tuning in live. And for those of you watching this after the fact, you got the comments below to sound off about your thoughts, but let's have a little bit of Friday fun. We've got a, a winter holiday. I don't know if any of you are celebrate whatever holiday this weekend, but uh, some do. So enjoy, right? All right. The novel starts with the Infellows fighting, laughing, and having a good old time. And they end in the Inn of the Last Home. A young Tika is tormenting Karaman, and an old Flint is swearing off trading forever. It's so refreshing to revisit this novel and this time of the companions. It's like old friends before you grew up and drifted apart. They all make their plans to leave and explore. Kidiara and Sturm are headed north and leave the following morning. They begin by traveling the coastal town or traveling to the coastal town of Zeradin to find passage to Karagoth. But the locals are hostile to all outsiders as they were just raided. This sets up the world of Kryn in an age of despair really, really well. People are distrustful of outsiders. They're raiding parties that scavenge local villages and towns, petty lords war and raid. It is a time truly of darkness. They meet an elf in a bar named Tyrell and Ambrodel who agrees to take them to Kergoth on his ship, the High Crest. It's wading out in deeper water, so Kidiara um, uh, pays for their passage with gold coin that she got for her mercenary work. It was minted in Sylvanesty, and everyone makes a big deal about it, as Sylvanesty has been locked away by themselves from the rest of the world since the Cataclysm. Again, great world-building here. They arrive at Kergoth and see a steam-engine gnome ship in the bay, I don't know if it was a hint dropped about future gnomish ships or just a fun point of interest. They go into a bar and are attacked by what seems to be draconians in hoods and cloaks. And this is the biggest problem with Dragonlance books. They constantly seed future danger, but by doing so, it would remove the initial shock of the companions seeing the creatures in Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Rather than being confused, they would just say, we saw those creatures in Kergoth. Huh. The Soulforge novel does this too, so and he do, it does it with Verminard and Draconians. So it's insane, it's annoying, it makes no sense, but here we are. Anyway, they run from the Draconians after starting the fire in the bar, and clearly the Draconians can't leave and fight out in the open. And so now the locals just see these people running out of the bar and they think those people are trying to burn our town down. And so they sort of run the interlopers out of town. So they left northeast to Salamnia. They camp in the trees and are attacked by a mage and a few goblins. Kitiara bests them all by 
killing them ultimately. And Sturm is finally seeing her for who she is, a self-interested survivalist and opportunist who doesn't mind killing. This young man version of Sturm isn't impressionable, but he's realizing he was a bit sheltered in understanding of who his friends actually were. A lightning storm rolls in and scares their mounts, and as they chase them, they run across a gnome who offers them a ride to Salamnia if they help get his ship out of the mud. It's stuck. They quickly realize this ship is a flying ship, and its captain Stutz is confident it will fly again as some of the other gnomes are collecting lightning and others are working to loosen the ship from the mud. With much effort, they unstick the ship, and the Cloudmaster, as it is named, actually succeeds in taking flight. However, they are gnomes, so something has to go wrong. The lightning strikes fused the throttle of the Cloudmaster so they can no longer steer or slow down. They are in a straight line for the moon of Lunatari. After elevation dangers and freezing situations are overcome, they're forced to make an anchor and break the fuel line so the ship will crash land on Lunatary rather than crash and explode on its surface. And miraculously, it works. But they clear the ship. They, once they clear the ship, they realize that they need ore to make new parts to fly home again. Now, the party leaves the three gnomes behind, and uh, the party being the rest of the gnomes and Kidiar and Sturm, and everyone else wanders the surface looking for ore deposits. They quickly realize that they have each inherited magical powers from the moon. Kidiara is as strong as a giant. Sturm is seeing visions of the past and future. He sees himself on what I interpreted as ice wall and his father running and hiding his armor for his son from brigands trying to kill him. It's really interesting to see how the characters change with their newfound abilities as well. The gnomes with them gain random powers, like rain creation from a cloud that manifests over its head, and super hearing, super sight, stuff like that. They note that when the sun is not hidden by Kryn, vegetation grows like super weeds. But when the shadow of Kryn is over them, it rocks, uh, it's just rocks, glass, and sand everywhere. They return to the crash after not finding anything, only to discover that the Cloudmaster isn't there. It was taken by some 60 footprints of something, and the three gnomes left behind are also gone. They all agree to go searching for the ship and set out. They discover that the path leads to a keep surrounded by trees. The trees come alive as they get near and lead them inside the keep. They're met with the King of Lunatary, a shipwrecked human who looks like a scarecrow. He's been stranded here for a very long time. This actually reminded me of some of those old-school American classics like Robinson Crusoe. I always loved that novel. It was, it's a lot of fun. A lot of planning. A lot more planning than adventure. But you throw in a couple cannibals and it's a good read. All right. So King Rapaldo, as he is called, is insane. Originally a carpenter, he was on a ship in a massive windstorm, built a cyclone that shot his ship into the air and landed him on Lunatary with another survivor who he ended up killing. And I have to say, I find it less believable that a cyclone shot his ship up to the moon than a gnome creating a flying ship. I don't know why, but it's the most absurd thing I've ever read. So the tree people believe he was a god because he had an iron axe, and there's no iron on Lunatary, so clearly he must be a god, right? He, uh, his keep itself is built from the remains of his crashed ship, and the tree people are called the Uud Uahai, are only active during daylight. 
At night, they stick their roots in the ground in order to drink water. So it's revealed that the ship was taken by giant crystal ants called mycones, or mycones or whatever. They're commanded by a voice in an obelisk some 50 miles away, but Rapaldo doesn't care. His primary concern is getting off this rock, and he believes that he can do it with the gnome's help. The only downside is that the tree people won't let him leave. So he plans on making Sturm the king so that he can then take Kidiara away. He ends up knocking Sturm out and has his tree men hold Kidiara captive. Then he kills one of the gnomes before Sturm is let out by another gnome and kills the king. Now, Rapaldo is constantly weighted down by this massive chain that he has around his neck as his power that he inherited from being on the moon is levitation that he cannot really control at all. And since there were no ceilings because the tree folk need the sunlight, he was afraid of floating off into space. Even his dead corpse was floating up with his blood floating up above it, which is truly a grisly image if you ask me. His body was pinned down by a dagger that Sturm used to kill him with. So the heroes leave to the obelisk as the trees are sleeping, and they arrive at this massive crater. The gnomes fashion sleds together, and I couldn't help but thinking of, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, something Oswald. Now I can't remember. From uh, that Christmas show, damn it. The National Lampoon's Christmas. Oh, what's his name? Something Oswald. Anyway, it'll come to me. With most crashing, and Kit ends up spreading her arm. As they traveled, Sturm has another vision of brigands looting his keep, and his father's aid was killed. But then they could all see him sort of like as a ghost or something. Everyone's powers are getting stronger the closer they get to the obelisk. They approach the obelisk, and the missing gnomes exit, uh, inviting themselves inside. So the three gnomes that were left with the ship are inside the obelisk. They walk out, and they're like, hey, guys, hey, everyone, how's it going? Come on inside. So a voice also invites them in, where they are giving tons of food and drink. Everyone eats except for Sturm, who doesn't trust their host, but more importantly, doesn't trust magic. So much so that he won't even eat or be healed by it, which is odd. A massive brass dragon named Cupolix Transfendemir lives here. It turns out that the dragon was placed there after the Second Dragon War to watch over like 490 some odd good dragon eggs. And he can't leave. And all of his books are rotting away because he's been here for thousands of years. He tried to make slaves of the tree people, but they were just too stupid to follow orders. And he found that he could control the ants with telepathy, so they tend to the eggs and do his needs. He tries to connect with Sturm one-on-one, -on -one, but then ultimately he makes a deal with Kitiara. If she can get him out of the obelisk, he will travel for two years as her mercenary partner. It seems that there's something he's not telling the party at this point, but he admits that magic everyone is experiencing is from the good dragon eggs itself, not the moon. Which is really interesting, because the moon is supposed to be the personification of <laughs> Lunatari, the, you know, the red-robed goddess. So it's, it's kind of weird that it's the dragon eggs that are doing it. Anyway, there's yet another problem with revealing too much. I am sure, and I can't stress this enough, this is a dragon. I don't care if it's a good or bad dragon. It's a dragon. Five years from this point, everyone is saying, oh, they're just children's stories because they've been gone for thousands of years. No one even believes the tale of Huma because that was just a child story. And yet they literally see a dragon and they don't react. They're just like, oh, yeah, cool. It's a dragon. That's dope. I'm sure it'll end up with their memory being wiped. 
it doesn't. But how many times can the authors of these novels rely on this trope? I'm already tired of it. If they met dragons now, why are they shocked about dragons later? Where is the fear that they should be feeling for seeing a dragon? I know it's a good dragon, but Kit is acting like it's a goblin in the manner she's speaking to it, and Sturm is indifferent at best. Why aren't they shocked? It's a huge problem for the era that this is supposed to be taking place in. So Sturm and the gnomes go to see the dragon eggs in the caverns and find that anything that was once alive, including Kittyara's leather glove, because leather comes from a cow or a deer, and like ultimately it comes alive, like, like thing. Crazy. Everything is given life here due to the proximity of the dragon eggs magic. It presents an interesting situation, and then the tree folk muster. They surround the obelisk looking for Sturm, who killed their king, and they want to kill him in return. The ants end up building up this dirt wall, surround like a moat around the obelisk, but it's only a matter of time before the tree folk attack. The tree folk begin quickly. They start throwing objects through the doorways, trying to hit the people inside. Kittyar and Sturm exit the obelisk to attack the trees, and they are quickly overwhelmed. Sturm has a glass spear shoved into his thigh, and he begins to bleed profusely. Kittyar comes to help, but it looks like they were both doomed until the gnomes created flails out of dirt stuffed into their pant legs, and they were swinging them around like a flail, smacking the trees with them. But the dragon inside made the gnomes with their pant flails look like a big, massive red dragon, which terrified the tree folk, and then they, of course, fled. Sturm refuses any magical healing and was tended to by the gnomes, but Lunatary's magic healed him anyway. Then the dragon continued to plead for help to get out of the obelisk, and with several attempts, nothing seemed to be possible, until Kittyar discovered acid on the gnome's ship. They built scaffolding in order to pour the acid into the lead that sat between the marble stones in the tower, and it eventually crumbled. Now that the dragon was free, they had to lighten the load of the gnome's ship so that it could fly with its ethereal airbag rather than the engine as it was repaired incorrectly. They eventually lightened the load and it floated free of Lunatari. The further they got away from the moon, the more the magic lost its effect in each of them. The dragon was flying next to the ship, and as they got higher, they saw a figure wandering, knowing that it was their dead gnome friend that was killed by that mad king, brought back to life. They threw tools down to him, but they couldn't control the ship in order to turn around and go get him. The journey back to Kryn took a really long time, as they had no engine. Kitiara eventually cut it from the hull and it fell back down to Lunatari. The dragon did its best to keep up, but he couldn't keep the strain of flying for days at a time when he was stuck inside of an obelisk, never able to build up the muscles to fly in the first place. So he had to return to Lunatary. Which <laughs> shockingly begs the question, why did he think he could get away? Dude's only glided up and down inside this massive obelisk. He thought he could fly? Like, past planetary bodies? That's insane. Even for a dragon, that's crazy. Anyway, it discovered the now red-skinned and bald gnome and ends up making friends with it. The rest of the gnomish crew floated until they re-entered Kryn. They arrived in the middle of the ocean and found an abandoned pirate ship. Now, this is starting to get like 20,000 leagues under the sea at this point. Just random adventures stuck on this gnomish ship. 
again, great callback, great vibe that I'm getting from it, but really odd for a Dragonlance book. So they arrive in the middle of the ocean. They find this abandoned pirate ship. Once aboard, they realize that the ship was cursed and the captain is a ghost who told the tale of them cheating out draconian forces. Again, no one's supposed to know about draconians at this point. They're supposed to be secretly building up their army in the east, not over in Palanthus, not over in Kerrigoth, not seen by anyone, but they're everywhere. You could not break the continuity more. It's so insane. So anyway, they cheated the Draconian forces by taking part of the arms and armor that they were supposed to be delivering to them, and a cleric of Tachesis curses the ship and the crew. So the ship gets blown off its course, and one of the crew becomes a ghoul, killing the rest of them. Kidiar and Sturm end up killing the ghoul, but Kidiar gets poisoned. Sturm uses the magical amulet that the elf Tyrolin at the very beginning of the book gave her, and uh, with the ghoul burning up, they got back on the gnome ship and arrived back at mainland eventually. Kidiar and Sturm split up at this point, and as Kidiara went away, Sturm went to Slamnia. He sees traces of an army passing and meets a dying Rose Knight who tells of draconians and goblins that have taken Garnet. As he dies, Sturm buries him, takes his horse, and heads to his own keep, or his father's keep anyway. The novel seems to be highlighting the difference between Kidiar and Sturm's philosophy, but they retread old ground so much, it's almost like each author, had a, each author had a section of the book, and they didn't realize that the other had already said it all. It's a bit much, though I did like the juxtaposition of Sturm healing Kit, knowing what will happen in Dragons of Winter Night, there was just even a moment when Sturm had this feeling of chest pain when he was talking to Kidiara on Lunatari, and he didn't really understand why. It's all foreshadowing, of course, to Winter Night. So the authors are doing a good job of encapsulating the characters, but it feels like it's already deep in the War of the Lance rather than before it even hit Abanasinia. Sturm sees an apparition through the storm of what seems to be his father telling him to beware of someone named Marisard. Perplexed, Sturm continues wandering through the plains and comes across ostensibly cowboys herding cattle to Vingard Keep. Sturm joins up with these ranchers and they're raided one day by a bunch of Easterners. I, I don't know where they're from, they just said from the East. Sturm subdues one of them who turns out to be a little girl, so he keeps her as a servant rather than killing her like the others want. She takes a liking to him as a protector and she ends up helping the herd with cattle. Uh, I'm sorry, the herd of cattle. They enter the keep and are met by a massive army encamped there, led by Marisard. He captures the uh, ranchers and Sturm after blinding them with a spell. He's wearing a Highlord mask also. His mission is to procure massive amounts of food and resources for the burgeoning dragon armies being raised in the east. Sturm is brought to Marisard's office with one of the men, that one of the ranchers, and the rancher admits to having killed Brightblade's father and the retainers after raiding Brightblade Keep. Marisard eventually kills that dude and offers Sturm a position as a commander in his army as he is clearly a disciplined and trained warrior. Of course, Sturm refuses, and the enslaved girl and Sturm overwhelm Marisard. Sturm takes his armor, poses as Marisard, and frees the other ranchers and has the girl go with them. Then Sturm travels to Brightblade Castle. There, he finds corpses of thieves and a spirit of what the novel says is Sturm, but I believe is his father. It leads him to his father's armor and sword. Then Marisard appears and attacks him. This wizard can use swords and armor, 
and can cast spells as a wizard, like many of the Dragon Army leaders, but again, it totally breaks all rules of Dungeons and Dragons, which this entire saga stemmed from. But oh well, it's already happened before with Erika's and, and Verminard, so why not with Marisard too? So he chases Sturm to the battlements with Kitiara when, uh, where Kitiara appears and shoots Marisard in the back. And he then falls from the battlements and dies. Kitiara shoots another arrow, saying that this is for the memory of their time together, but the next time they meet, Sturm may not be so lucky. Sturm then travels to Palanthus for a few days before heading to the High Claris Tower, and that ends the novel. I do feel like this end bit was completely tacked on after the fact, and Kitiara's absence from it was definitely felt. It was an odd end to the novel, which only spanned a year of the full five that they agreed upon traveling in, and I also got almost misty-eyed when Sturm found his father's armor and had this little note on it saying, For my son. I truly love Salamnic Knight Heritage. It reminds me of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, but more, I love Sturm's devotion to a code and measure that is ancient and absent among other knights of his own order in this era. All in all, I truly enjoyed this book, even if it was about 100 pages longer than it needed to be. I didn't remember any of this from my childhood, but it was well-written, if not flawed, with the references to dragons, draconians, and dragon armies in this era when no one in Salamnia should know about them because they haven't invaded yet. And the characters themselves being surprised about their existence five years later also breaks massive continuity. The time and awareness disparity is annoying, but it's not isolated to just this novel, so what can you do? In any case, I would highly recommend this to fans of the Heroes of the Lance or Dragonlance in general. The flying gnome ship that didn't work very well felt actually in-world to me. Even if the concepts of atmosphere, oxygen, and the vacuum of space weren't referenced at all, which I really think they should have because it would have made total logical sense even in a fantasy setting. So what do you guys think about this? Rhiannon, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Sean, what up? Um... Let's see, you just hate the inconsistencies with canon? Yeah, it's brutal. But there was never a story group. You know, you, you could make the argument that the editor should have been the story group, saying, well, you can't write about this because it's already it's not going to happen for another five years. But TSR was just trying to pump stuff out and sell it. So, And the fact that if you didn't have draconians or dragons in it, fans would be like, well, where's the big danger? You know, what's the big threat? What's the big mystery and magical side of it? But that's the point, is that it's set before all of that stuff. It's set in a time where everyone is hard up, fighting, struggling to live. There's no healing, supposedly, but people are healed left and right in this novel. I mean, the whole thing is, is very sort of out there. Like it's during the War of the Lands. Um, let's see. You do like the fun story, especially when the gnomes or Kendra are involved, but this is borderline just silly. Yeah, it, it is pretty silly. I gotta be honest though, like reading Conundrum, which is basically a submarine traveling underneath the continent of Ancelon, that's pretty absurd as well. But they're gnomes. Like as long as whatever they create blows up every once in a while, then that's the point. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't find that as egregious, personally. Um, you see, uh, you wonder what Lunatari, the god, not the moon, thinks of all this. Yeah, seriously. And that's the other thing. I was, like, constantly wondering, why are all these beings existing on this moon and there's, like, no sign of the god itself or any of the gods? Because, again, remember, they're absent right now, unless you're a wizard. 
And then, of course, the gods of magic aren't, aren't absent. So you have to wonder, like, you've revealed dragon eggs, good dragon eggs here. You've revealed dragons. Why does Kitiara and Sturm not know that later on? Wouldn't that be a bit of information you would want to share with, I don't know, Fizban in the end of the last home when he comes to tell a story about dragons? And you're like, oh yeah, hey, here's a funny thing. I was just up on that red moon over there and there's like a whole cache of dragon eggs that I saw with my own eye and Kit's glove now alive crawling around them. <laughs> like, it's just, it's out there, man. Oh man, it was crazy. Anyway, I, I really did have a good time with it. Hey, Engine Joe, how you doing, man? You like this book along with Kender Moore? Use this material for most of the crin. Um, also fits along with Kender Moore's structure. Yeah, Kender Moore is going to be a good one. That's next that I'm reading. And then, of course, I'm just going to do it in line in Brothers and Majeras after that. It's hard to find a 92 TSR copy. Yeah, I mean, that's the one I've got, I think. I can't remember. Like, the full art cover version of them is the original. And then they did the bordered cover as the reprint, and then did this as the modern reprint. So I have I, the bordered version of it, whatever year that is. Um, all right, thanks, The Nook. Thanks for tuning in, man. I, I do recommend this book. It is goofy. It is silly. But it's Sturm and Kitiara. How do you not enjoy that? My only complaint is that with so much after-the-fact writing... You would think that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, when they wrote the whole second generation thing with Steel Brightblade and Kitiara, you know, getting down with Sturm, that never happened in this book for obvious reasons, because that story didn't exist yet. But you would think that they would try to fit that version in with the existing version. And so what I see over and over and over again, the more I look into this, is Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman completely refusing to acknowledge any other authors in Dragonlance at all and intentionally breaking canon by completely ignoring them. So their stories are one version of Dragonlance and everyone else's stories are another version of Dragonlance and never the two shall meet. Because if you do try to connect the two, you end up with the problems of my arguments in this review and many others. It just doesn't make sense. Especially if you start to consider The Legend of Huma and the Dragonlance Destinies trilogy that's being written right now. Doesn't match up. Makes no sense. So you have to divorce the two because they are not the same Dragonlance world at all. If you like Mark Weiss and Tracy Hickman, that's great. I do too. But you would think they'd be a little more concerned with having consistency in the world that they actually created. And they don't. They don't care. Which bothers me as someone who does care. Maybe I shouldn't. What are you going to do? Yeah, everyone else's are Kender Tales. All right. I don't know. It still bugs me. <laughs> I can't help it. It bothers me. I, like, I, I cut my teeth on Star Wars old universe stuff where everything was consistent. Yes, there was little things here and there, but for the most part, tons of different authors, tons of different contributors between movies, comics, books, and video games, and it all was, by and large, consistent. I don't know why they couldn't do that with Dragonlance. It doesn't take a genius. Just, just read. <laughs> I just don't get it. Ugh, kills me. Ugh. Anyway, that is it for my review of Darkness and Light by Paul B. Thompson and Tanya C. Cook. Definitely worth a read. What do you all think about the references presented to the characters like dragons and draconians? Do you feel like the authors maintain the core of the characters of Sturm and Kitiara? And finally, was a flying gnome ship crash landing on Lunatary 
too much for you. You can email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. It all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful and wacky world of Dragonlance. Thank you so much for joining in that celebration. So until next time, my name is Adam. Slanjavar.